This morning, we're going to continue in our study of the book of 2 Timothy. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, Last week, we started uh, off our study of the book of 2 Timothy by doing more of an overview and introduction to the book. We looked at the who, what, when, where, why, and how of the book so that we can understand the, the background, the overall context of the book. Paul the Apostle writes the book of 2 Timothy while being held as a prisoner uh, within a dark, damp, and cold dungeon in Rome. The political environment at this time has drastically shifted against Christianity as the Roman Emperor Caesar Nero has classified Christianity as an illegitimate religion within the Roman Empire. The dramatic change against Christianity seems to have its roots in the fact that Nero falsely accused the Christians of the great fire of Rome that took place in the year 64 AD, ended up destroying over 70% of the city uh, of Rome. Many believe that uh, Nero himself actually ordered the burning of Rome so that he could rebuild it in his own image. And when things got out of hand, Nero looked for a scapegoat and pointed his finger at the Christian community. And the result was a great wave of persecution against Christianity throughout the entire Roman empire. Paul was arrested during this time and subsequently sentenced to execution. Paul writes this letter knowing that his days are numbered, that he is going to soon depart from this world and enter into the promise of eternal life with the Lord. This is the final letter of Paul the apostle. And so it is a very intimate letter that Paul writes to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And this week, we're going to pick up in our study of the book where we left off by looking at the next few verses of the chapter. And last week we did the introduction and we looked at verses one and two. This morning, our text is going to be second Timothy chapter one, verses three through seven. And the title of our study is going to be remembering Timothy Okay, remembering Timothy. With that, I'd like to ask you guys to rise to your feet in honor of God and his holy word. I'm going to read through our text from my Bible. uh, And uh, as is my practice, I read from the New King James version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different Bible translation, that's fine. I just want to encourage you to follow along uh, as I read from my Bible. Follow along in your own. And so Paul continues his letter to his beloved son in the faith, with the following in chapter one, verse three. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did as without ceasing. I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance, the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and the opportunity that we have to gather in this place, to sing of your goodness, your faithfulness, your love. And now Lord, to Open your word and allow your word to speak to us. And we thank you for the promise 
of your word, that it will accomplish that which you send it forth to do. And so as we study and as we read, I pray your will be done. I pray your word would work in our hearts. Lord, as we've opened our Bibles in like manner, Lord, we will have opened our hearts and our ears and our minds that we might receive all that your spirit desires to say to us this morning. Lord, we ask for your continued presence. We ask for your blessings, your leading and guiding through your word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I titled our study this morning, Remembering Timothy, because within these five short verses, Paul writes about many different things he remembers about Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. Paul and Timothy had a very special bond and relationship throughout their years together. Paul had many wonderful things to say about Timothy. In one of his early letters, Paul wrote in first Thessalonians that Timothy was a brother in the faith, a minister of God and a fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he described Timothy as his beloved and faithful son in the Lord. Paul had a lot to say about Timothy in the book of Philippians. He described him as a fellow bondservant of Jesus Christ. Later in the book, he described him as being more like-minded to Paul than anyone else. One who would sincerely care for the Philippians. He described his character and service in the gospel with Paul as that of a son serving alongside a father. They were like a father and son team serving together in the family business of ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy, Paul referred to him as a true son in the faith. Later on, he simply referred to him as a man of God. Timothy was all of these things and more to Paul. And as Paul sat there in his prison cell within a Roman dungeon, he was constantly thinking about Timothy. Within these five verses of our text, Paul uses a form of the Greek root word mimnesco four separate times. The root word mimnesco is a verb that means to be mindful of or to remember. In verse three, Paul says, I remember you. In verse four, he writes about being mindful. In verse five, he speaks about calling to remembrance. And in verse six, he writes, I remind you. Each of those words share the same Greek root word, mimnesco. And as we go through our text this morning, we're going to use the various things that Paul was mindful of and remembering about Timothy as our outline. um, We're going to go verse by verse, and we're going to note what it was that Paul was mindful of and what it was that he was remembering about Timothy. And during each section, we'll look to pull out any important points of application that we can take home with us this morning. And so we're going to begin with verse three, where Paul remembers to pray for Timothy. Take a look at verse three again with me. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Verse three opens up with Paul mentioning how he thanks God without ceasing as he prays for and remembers Timothy. Now we have to keep in mind the current situation Paul was in when he wrote these words. I thank God. Paul was in a dark, damp 
cold dungeon awaiting his execution. And yet one of the first things he mentions in this, in this letter is how he was thanking God continually without ceasing, remembering and praying for Timothy. And this isn't the first time Paul's acted this way. In the book of Acts, we read of an instance when Paul and his travel companion Silas had been beaten with rods and thrown into prison, having their feet shackled to the stocks. And what were they doing in the middle of the night after being beaten and thrown into a prison cell? Well, the scriptures tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. How is it? that Paul can act in such a way when seemingly everything is going against him. Well, I think Paul gives us a few clues to that answer here in verse three. You see, when Paul writes, I think he actually uses two Greek words. He uses the words karin echo. Echo means to have or hold fast to. And the word karin is a form of the Greek word karis, which means grace. God with a pure conscience as his forefathers had done. Now this mention of Paul's forefathers is obviously in reference to his upbringing as a Jew. Paul knew and understood that his forefathers served the same God that he did. His forefathers served God looking forward to the day when God would send his Messiah. Paul understood that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of God's promise to send a Messiah. He understood and realized that he wasn't serving a different God than his forefathers, but the same God who had fulfilled his promise to send a Messiah to save his people from their sins. Now, this word serve is also an interesting one. If you were to look it up in the Greek, it's the Greek word latruo. And the Greek word latruo doesn't just mean to serve as in to offer a service or to work for someone. It means to serve in a religious sense. It means to worship God. Paul uses it this way when he testified of his faith and his service toward God before Felix, the governor in Acts chapter 24, he stated to Felix, but this, I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship It's the same Greek word, Latruo. I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. You see, Paul made it an emphasis in his life to serve God, to worship him with a pure conscience. We might say a guiltless conscience. Paul's worship of God was not phony. It was not two-faced. It was pure, clean, guiltless. He knew that there wasn't anything going on in his life that was contrary to his service and his worship of God. His heart and his motives for serving were pure. He did the right things and with the right kind of heart. Do you guys realize and understand that God is just as concerned with how we do things as he is with what we do? We can do the right thing, but have the wrong motives, right? We can do the right thing, but our heart can be detached and, and separated from our service. It wasn't that way for Paul. Paul served and worshiped God with a pure conscience. Not only were his actions in accordance with God and his will, but also his heart and motives were in the right place as well. 
And this is, I think, something else that helped Paul to thank God, even in the midst of a really bad situation. Paul had a clear conscience. He was serving and worshiping as God in purity. And so whatever came his way, he could trust that it was part of God's will for his life. He didn't have to second guess himself or wonder whether or not this was the disciplining hand of God upon his life because he was entertaining some hidden sin in his life. You think, oh, is this, is this God's will or is this because I'm, I'm, I've kind of blown it? There was a peace in knowing that he could stand before the Lord in the grace of God with a pure conscience. And I think this begs the question, what about us, right? You know, can we thank God regardless of the situations we are in? Can we thank God in every situation, whether we classify our our situation as good or whether we classify it as bad, right? Are we clinging to the grace of God and serving our God with a pure conscience? If so, we ought to be able to do as Paul does. Continually thank him for whatever situation comes our way because we trust that he's in control and that his grace is sufficient and it will be enough whatever life brings our way. Let's continue on in our text, looking at our next verse where Paul remembers the tears of Timothy in verse four. Read it with me. Continuing from verse three, he remembers uh, Timothy in his prayers night and day. Verse four, greatly desiring to see you being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. As Paul thanked God and prayed continually for Timothy night and day, he was reminded of the tears of Timothy. Now we are not given the context here of when Paul may have seen or witnessed Timothy's tears and how he had this lasting image of Timothy weeping before him. And and while I admit that, Uh, and I cannot point to any chapter or verse for proof of this, I imagine that these tears were shed by Timothy whenever they last saw each other and parted from each other's company. This could have been after Paul departed from Macedonia when he left Timothy there in Ephesus to pastor the church, as mentioned in the beginning of the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, But that was about four years prior to this writing, which makes it seem less likely to have been the last time they saw each other, but it's possible. But there is some internal evidence from this book to suggest that Paul had actually made it back to the city of Ephesus and that he may have been subsequently arrested while in the city of Ephesus. Later on in this book, Paul's going to mention one Alexander the coppersmith who did Paul much harm. He will actually warn Timothy to watch out for him because he greatly resisted their words as they went around and they proclaimed the gospel message. Second Timothy chapter four, verses 14 and 15. Tell us about that. While Paul doesn't mention the exact harm that he did to him. So this is speculation. It could be that he was the one that brought accusations against Paul and caused him to be arrested while he was in Ephesus. Remember that the Roman empire was cracking down on Christianity and Ephesus happened to be the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, a very prominent city within the Roman empire at this time. Now we do have some other scripture evidence that may help fill in some gaps regarding this Alexander and his acts and attitude towards Paul. 
There is mention of an Alexander in the book of first Timothy, whom Paul had to deliver over to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. And there's another mention of an Alexander in the book of Acts who lived in Ephesus and was connected with the other artisans who worked with metals, making idols and other metal works. He was a Jew that lived in Ephesus and he was actually supportive of Paul at the beginning of his ministry in Acts chapter 19, verse 33. It was Alexander who was brought up and tried to calm the crowd when there was a riot riot going on in the city to bring a defense for Paul and uh, the ministry that he was doing. It would seem that if all these different mentions of Alexander are referring to the same person, again, I can't prove it, but each one of them was in Ephesus and twice they're connected with artisanry and coppersmith and they're all three named Alexander. So I don't think it's too far fetched to believe that they could be the same person. Okay. And if that is the case, okay, what we would have is someone who was at first supportive of Paul and seemingly part of the church body who at a later time abandoned Paul and shipwrecked his faith, causing Paul to hand him over to Satan. And then this Alexander potentially holding a grudge against Paul turned against him and greatly opposed everything Paul said and did eventually leading to Alexander bringing great harm against Paul by playing a significant part in his arrest the last time that Paul was in Ephesus. Okay. And if that is the case, again, I can't prove it from the Bible. Okay. Nowhere in the scripture are we definitively told when and where and why Paul was arrested this final time. But if my theory is correct, then the last time Paul and Timothy would have seen each other was when Paul was being dragged off as a prisoner of the Roman empire. And we can imagine what that scene would have been like for Timothy, right? To see his father in the faith, okay, a man whom he had followed around the world, serving alongside him, a man who had poured into him and mentored him and loved him like a true son, to see him being led off to Rome, knowing what awaited him there, knowing the political climate of that day, that Christians were being executed for their faith. It would have had to have been a very emotional scene for Timothy. And I imagine there was much weeping and there was great anguish at the thought of never seeing his friend, his companion, his father figure ever again. And imagining that scene, it would obviously have had a profound impact upon Paul as well, right? To see his son in the faith weeping before him, to see him hurting so much, to know the struggles he would face, to know that he would may never see him again. I'm sure that's why Paul was mindful of his tears and why he remembered them and why he remembered to pray for him night and day. You see this relationship between Paul and Timothy was special. And it reminds me of a very powerful and important truth. You know, it's been said that families are made at the foot of the cross. And that saying is based upon the time where Jesus was hung upon the cross and he saw his mother and he saw John, the disciple whom he loved standing close by him. And he said, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. 
And then John writes that from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. You see, Mary, the mother of Jesus and John became instant family there at the foot of the cross. John took her in as his own mother, cared for her, provided for her as if she were his own. It's a beautiful sight. But we see that act play out over and over again throughout the church. Families truly are made at the foot of the cross. As we come to know Christ and we surrender our lives to him, we are welcomed into the family of God. And we meet some really amazing people that become so close to us that they become like family. In many cases, they become even closer than your actual blood relatives. And I imagine that for some of you here this morning, right now, you're thinking of some very special people that God has brought into your life that fit that description, who are like family, even closer than family because of your mutual faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage those of you who are thinking of certain people in your life that fit that description right now to thank God for the family that he's given to you. But not only to thank God, you guys, I want to encourage you to reach out to those people and let them know how grateful you are for them. Perhaps you had someone like Paul in your life. Someone who took you under their wing and poured into you and mentored you. Someone who was like a father figure, a mother figure, or an incredible sister or brother in the Lord. Reach out to them and let them know how special they are to you and how God has used them in your life. I'm sure they will be blessed to hear from you and they will share similar feelings and admiration for you as well. You see, the family of Christ is such a rich and powerful thing, how it can bond us and unite us together in our common faith. Paul remembered Timothy's tears and it caused him to greatly desire to see him, that his joy may be filled. Paul's joy would be made full if he could just see Timothy one more time. The heart of a father longing to know the joy of the presence of his son one more time before leaving this earth. Such a powerful relationship that these two had. Let's continue to our next verse where Paul remembers the faith of Timothy. Read verse five with me. He says, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. As Paul thought of Timothy, he was also reminded of the kind of faith that Timothy had. Timothy had a genuine faith. The word genuine literally means unhypocritical. If you're reading from the New King James Version and you see a superscript next to the word genuine, you'll see that in the footnotes that this word literally means unhypocritical. Uh, it's the word anupokritas from the primitive a or a, which means without and Hupokrinomai, uh, which means to pretend or to simulate. It's where we get our word hypocrite from. Putting them together, we get unhypocritical or genuine, or your translation may read sincere. Timothy's faith was like Paul's faith. It was genuine. It was sincere. It was the real deal. It wasn't phony. It wasn't fake. Timothy didn't act one way in front of one group of people and then act completely different before another group of people. Also, Timothy didn't act one way in front of people and then another way behind closed doors where no one else was watching other than the Lord. And can we say the same? 
Do you put on your Sunday's best and come to church, putting on a good show for everyone to see, but then the rest of the week live and, and act completely different? Do you act one way when you're with the guys at work and another way when you're at home with your family? Do you live separate lives? Timothy wasn't like that. His faith was genuine, sincere, unhypocritical. And that's the kind of faith that God wants to see in each and every one of us. Another thing that is very important to note is where that faith in Timothy's came from. We are told here that the kind of faith Timothy had was first in his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. The book of Acts tells us a little bit about Timothy's family makeup. Luke, the writer of Acts, writes about Timothy stating, Behold, a certain disciple uh, was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. The fact that Luke highlights Timothy's father as being Greek in contrast to his mother being a Jew who believed leads many to believe that Timothy's father was not a believer and that his mother was the major influencer in his faith. She was the spiritual advisor and mentor to Timothy. Later on in the book of second Timothy, Paul will mention how Timothy had known the Holy scriptures from childhood, indicating that from a very young age, he had someone reading and sharing the scriptures with him. And based upon what we read here in verse five, it would seem that both his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice played a huge role in molding and shaping him in the scriptures. Most speculate that Timothy's mother Eunice came to faith in Jesus Christ when Paul came through the city of Lystra on his first missionary journey back in the book of Acts chapter 14. Again, most speculate that at that same time or soon after, Timothy also gave his life to the Lord. And from that time forward, they continued to grow in their faith together. By the time Paul returned a couple years later during his second missionary journey, Timothy had become a well-respected disciple of the Lord. And that is when Paul decided to take young Timothy with him on the rest of his missionary journeys. But all of this points to and reminds us of the importance of passing along a godly heritage to our family. As Christian parents, we have a responsibility to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. The Bible teaches in Proverbs chapter 22, verse six, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Ephesians states, and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Now I'm going to say something here. And I want you guys to understand my heart when I say this. Okay. It is not the responsibility of the church to train your children up in the ways of the Lord. Okay. Our job, okay, is to simply reinforce what you ought to be teaching and training your children within your home day by day. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay. We do our best to love on and teach your kids the word of the Lord. They're being taught right now. Okay. Um, we want to teach them how to apply God's word to their lives. You know, I'm super blessed by Sulema and, you know, the children's ministry and, and all the volunteers that serve and love on the kids. But listen, we only get them for a little over an hour on Sundays. Okay. And maybe another hour on Wednesdays, if you come to our midweek service, but what about all the other rest of the hours in the week? Okay. How are you using those hours to help mold and shape your children to walk with the Lord? How are you training them to be followers of Jesus Christ? 
You see, you have a tremendous opportunity before you to help lead your children into a loving relationship with their Lord and Savior, to be able to pass along a godly heritage to your own children, that you may see them grow in the Lord and be used by him for mighty things. Do not miss out on the opportunity. Okay, take your responsibility seriously and lead your children and train them in what it means to love God and to walk with him all of your days. Experience the joy of seeing your children walk with the Lord themselves. It is a beautiful thing. John writes in 3 John verse 4, there are no chapters in 3 John, just verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And I agree wholeheartedly. There's no greater joy as a parent to know that your children are walking with the Lord. Pray for your children, okay? I want every single one of you who are parents here this morning to know that joy, to know the joy of hearing and seeing your children walk in truth, pray for your children, teach them the scriptures, example what a life surrendered to Christ looks like and pass on to them a godly heritage that will continue to lead and guide them the rest of their days. And I promise you this, you will not regret it. Let's continue our next verse where Paul remembers the gift in Timothy in verse six. Read it with me. He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. As Paul thought of Timothy, he was also reminded of the gift of God that was within him. The gift that had been given to him when Paul had laid hands upon him, presumably prior to some great work of ministry for the Lord, perhaps prior to being sent out with Paul, or perhaps when Paul set him up as the pastor in Ephesus. We don't know for sure when this happened. What we do know is that this is not the first time that Paul has mentioned the gift of God that is within Timothy and his need to operate in it. Previously in his first letter, Paul wrote to Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. It would seem that perhaps Timothy had been a bit reluctant or shy in exercising and using this gift that God had given to him. Now, when it mentions the word gift, it is the Greek word charisma. Okay. Um, the word charisma is a gift of grace an undeserved benefit. The suffix M-A at the very end uh, of charisma indicates the result of a grace. Charis or charis is grace. M-A means it's the result of something. So charisma is the result, something that comes as a result of God's grace. Okay. In the New Testament, it is only ever used of gifts and graces that are imparted from God. Most often, when we refer to the word charisma, we associate it with the gifts of the Spirit. There are a few different places that list out uh, various gifts of the Spirit in your Bibles. You can go to Romans chapter 12. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can go to Ephesians chapter 4. Some even say 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, list a few, a couple. Okay. Some even try to divide the gifts into different types of gifts, sign gifts and ministry gifts and other types of gifts. As you look at the different portions of scripture that speak about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you will see some gifts that are mentioned in multiple places and others that are only listed in one particular place. 
I am not certain myself that the intent of the Bible is to completely list out every single gift of the spirit. And so I am inclined to be open to the idea that there could even be other gifts of the spirit that are not mentioned in the Bible. For instance, you know, there is no mention in the Bible of a gift of a worship leader or a gift of a song leader. And yet I believe that certain people certainly are gifted by the spirit of God to lead people in song, to lead people in worship. Yet you won't find that gift listed anywhere within the scriptures. Okay. All that to say, you guys, the various lists that you may come across in the Bible should not be considered the end all be all when it comes to spiritual gifts. Okay. It's not meant to be compiled as a list of, okay, these are the only gifts and I've got to have which one of these. And I don't know which one it is. And I'm going to take a test and it's going to tell me what my gift is. Don't put a lot of stock into those things. Okay. Now the topic of spiritual gifts is one that's caused some division within the body of Christ, unfortunately. Some people believe that the gifts of the spirit are no longer in use or applicable to the church today, that they were only for the first century church and have been done away with now. Others believe that some gifts are available still, while certain other gifts are no longer to be used in the church. And some churches believe that the gifts of the spirit are just as much available to the church today as they were when they were first given back in the first century. Churches that believe the gifts of the spirit are still in operation today and available to the body of Christ as the spirit of God wills are commonly referred to as charismatic churches. Okay. From the Greek word charisma that's mentioned here in our text. We here at Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni are a charismatic church. Okay? Some of you might be shocked by that because you have a certain idea of what a charismatic church may look like. Okay. I believe and teach that the gifts of the spirit are still at work in the church today and still available to be distributed to the body as the spirit wills. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, after listing out a number of different spiritual gifts, Paul states, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Okay. So the gifts of the spirit are given by the will of the spirit. They are not learned. Okay. You don't go to a class to learn how to use a gift of the spirit. Okay. They are not earned either. Okay. You can't do certain amount of, you know, good works. And all of a sudden now you're going to get this spiritual gift. Okay. That's not how it works. They are a gift from the spirit of God as he wills. I also believe that each and every person who has the spirit of God dwelling within them has at least one spiritual gift that they are to use to minister to the body of Christ. Peter writes in first Peter, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Paul wrote in first Corinthians chapter 12, verse seven, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The Bible is very clear that we all have at least one gift. I will state, however, that we like to ensure that we follow the clearly laid out principles surrounding the gifts of the spirit and their use as described in first Corinthians chapter 14. There, Paul wrote about how certain gifts of the spirit should be done in certain settings and at certain times. There are guidelines that are given when exercising certain gifts that we want to make sure that we follow. And then after giving all his guidelines and instructions pertaining to the use of the gifts within the church body, Paul concluded, let all things be done decently and in order. And so we want to follow 
what the scriptures say and make sure that whenever we do operate in the various spiritual gifts, that we do so in accordance with the guidelines found in scripture and when, that we do so in decency and in order. Back to Timothy and Paul's remembrance of the gift in Timothy. The scripture does not tell us what specific gift or gifts that were given to Timothy, only that Paul instructed him to stir it up here in verse six. Now the wording here is important to note. The verb to stir up is written in the present active indicative, which implies an ongoing need to fan or stir up a flame. We should not conclude that Paul is implying Timothy had let the flame of God's calling and giftedness to burn low or to uh, smolder out. Okay. The way that it's written in the grammar, the way that you look at it here, it, it, it means it, it can mean that, but it's the grammar would indicate that it can also simply mean that Timothy needs to continue to keep on fanning the flame. Okay. Not that he hasn't been doing so already, but that in these difficult and trying times, he's going to need to continue to fan that flame, to continue to stir that gift that God had given to him. And so let's not be too quick to belittle Timothy or look down upon him as if he wasn't using the gift God had given to him. Previously, four years ago, Timothy was exhorted not to neglect the gift that had been given to him. And I want to believe that he followed Paul's instructions and really began operating that gift because I don't think he would have lasted as long as he did in Ephesus if he wasn't operating in the gift that God had given to him. Paul's words here to Timothy are an exhortation to continue to stir up the gift of God that had been given to him, that he may minister all the more in these troubles sometimes. Well, what do we take from this? What's our application? Timothy had been given a special gift from God, a gift that was to be used in his ministry to the body of Christ. And I believe that God has likewise given to each of us a special gift of the spirit that he wants us to use to minister to the body of Christ. I want to encourage you all to operate in the gift or gifts that God has given to you. Plug in, serve the body, edify one another, sharpen your gift, put it to good use. Do not neglect it. Do not let it go unused. If you do not know what your spiritual gift is, well, pray and ask God to reveal it to you or just plug in and start serving the body and allow God to reveal what it is he's gifted you in. It may be that he has gifted you in areas you've never even thought of. Don't limit God, but allow him to lead and guide you as you minister to the body of Christ. Amen. Let's look at our final verse of our text. Verse seven, where Paul remembers the spirit in Timothy. Verse seven says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. As Paul reminded Timothy of the gift of the spirit, he was also mindful of the spirit of God, that uh, the spirit God had given to Timothy. I believe this speaks of the Holy Spirit and his presence inside of Timothy. As a believer in the Lord, Timothy has the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit inside of him. And the spirit of God is not a spirit of fear, or your translation may read timidity or cowardice, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Let's look at these three descriptions of the Holy Spirit. First off, the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power. 
As Jesus was about to ascend into heaven after his resurrection, he told his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy spirit. Not many days from now, a few verses later, he told them you shall receive power when the Holy spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth earth. And so there was a power that came with God's indwelling spirit. And after the disciples were filled with the Holy spirit on the day of Pentecost, they went out and they boldly proclaimed the love of God and the message of Jesus Christ. Acts tells us that with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter four, verse 33. Paul had firsthand experience regarding this demonstration of power as he faithfully proclaimed the same message by the same spirit. He wrote to the church in Corinth describing how his speech and preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that their faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. But the spirit is not just a spirit of power. He's also a spirit of love. In fact, the Bible describes the fruit of the spirit as being first and foremost love Galatians chapter five, verse 22, Paul writes, but the fruit of the spirit is love. And this isn't just any kind of love we're talking about. This is the love of God, the selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love of God, God's agape love that has been given to us. Paul writes in Romans about how the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy spirit who was given to us. We need the love of God to lead us and to guide us and to flow through us as we look to share the love of God with others. God's love inside of us is what defines us as followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need to love one another, not just our fellow brother or sister in the Lord, but we need to have a love for the lost if we are going to ever effectively minister to them. Listen, we may not like what certain people do, but we must always be motivated by the love of God and reaching out to the lost. We look more like our God and savior when our hearts break for the lost and we see them as the Lord sees them broken people in need of the love, grace and forgiveness of God. Last but not least, the spirit of God is the spirit of a sound mind. This word sound mind is one word in the original Greek. It's only used this one time in the entirety of the New Testament scriptures. Different Bible translations translated a few different ways. Your Bible, if you're not reading from the New King James Version, may read discipline or self-discipline or perhaps self-control or maybe even sound judgment. The idea this word portrays is the idea of being able to act sensibly, to have sound judgment, to exercise self-discipline, self-discipline and self-control. Now, don't get the wrong idea by all these words revolving around self. This is not something that we strive up in our own power or that we have from within us. Paul clearly states this is something that comes with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it too is listed as a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 reads, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, but it continues. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and last but not least, self-control. 
Against such there is no law. Timothy would need to exercise self-control and self-discipline in order to lead others. A true minister of the gospel must have control over himself. He can't, you can't flip your lid and blow up on people. (laughs) We need to be wise as serpents, harmless as doves, as Jesus described in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. And here's the point I want to make about these three descriptions of the spirit of God. We'll wrap it all up here. They are meant to be balanced out in our lives. We need all three of these elements working together in unison. Too much power and not enough love will come across as harsh and rough to others, overbearing and forceful. Too much love and emotion without any self-control may lead us to becoming a hot mess led by and controlled by our emotions. Too much self-control may lead to a lack of action, a lack of power. We discipline ourselves so much that we simply sit idly by not doing anything. We need all three to be working together in unison. We need the fullness of the spirit working within us, all the different elements of God's Holy Spirit. We need his power. We need his love and we need his self-discipline. We need them to be working together in harmony that we may boldly, lovingly, and wisely minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for just the, the bond, the love, the relationship that Paul and Timothy had for one another, how we can read uh, into that relationship, Lord. And Lord, we thank you as well for their love for you. And Lord, I pray that we would have that same love. Lord, that your spirit inside us would empower us. Lord, that your spirit inside us would fill us with your love. Lord, that we, uh, in, Lord, we would be able to balance it all with self-discipline, self-control. Lord, I pray that we might be those who faithfully proclaim your gospel message. Lord, those who cling to your grace, those who live and serve you with a pure conscience. Lord, I pray that we would take advantage of the opportunities we have as parents. Lord, that we would take advantage of the opportunities that we have as servants of you, Lord, to be used by you, to be empowered by you. And so, Lord, we ask, have your way in us. Lead us and guide us. Use us for your glory, for your kingdom. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.